You're listening to Icebreakers, the podcast exploring all things Canadian and Eurasian, business, culture, and personalities. The series is produced by Serba, the Canada-Eurasia-Russia Business Association. We're a non-profit supporting trade, investment, and good relations between Canada and the countries of Eurasia. I'm your host, Nathan Hunt, one of the founders of Serba and former chairman of the National Board. I invite you to tune in regularly for valuable insights relating to the region. I'm joined today by Piotr Dutkevich, Professor of Political Science and former Director of the Institute of European and Russian Studies. Currently, he is co-director of Carleton University's Center for Governance and Public Management. Professor Dutkevich was the editor-in-chief of a 19-volume series, and yes, I said 19, on local and regional development in Poland and Eastern Europe, covering the years 1986 to 89. Uh, he has been editor or co-editor of 16 books, author of many chapters and books and articles in professional journals. He was the director of four large-scale high-visibility projects in Russia founded by the Canadian International Development Agency and involved in CEDA-led projects on juvenile justice and youth at risk in Russia. Professor Dudkevich, I should mention, also received the Order of Friendship by decree of the President of Russian Federation, at that time Dmitry Medvedev. Welcome, Pyotr. Good day to you, Nathan. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thank you for joining us. The, probably the most important part of your biography, as far as we're concerned, that I failed to mention is that you're a member of the Valdai Discussion Club. You're certainly a member of, of Serba's National Board of Directors, which we appreciate, but you're also a member of the Valdai Club, and we'll talk about your role in that a little later. But first, let's talk about your upbringing. You grew up in Poland. You received your bachelor's degree from Warsaw University. But uh, it wasn't always smooth sailing. You told, you told me some very interesting things about your parents during our previous meeting. What, what can you tell about their experience with Russia? You know, my, my family, as many, as many Poles, suffered during the, the Second World War. And after the end of the Second World War, my father was uh, for two years in the, in the Stalinist jail. Our family had the saying that we have two enemies. One is the Soviet Union and another is Germany. So I grew up in the sense of having two en enemies bordering with Poland. So that was my upbringing, Nathan. So that, I would say, is almost, at least stereotypically, we would believe that is typical for a Pole. Why on earth would you choose to move to Russia, to study the Russian language, to become uh, an expert in the language and culture, and uh, more importantly, I would say the, the political structure, the ideologically make makeup of uh, today's Russia, what pushed you in that direction? It's precisely this I'm bringing, because I was going to check whether it is true that Soviet Union was so bad, as many members of my family said. So I decided to go to Soviet Union, check myself what's going on inside. And then I was going to go to Germany, which finally I did not, to check as well what's going on on our Western border. This was the act of youth rebellion, sort of. Very interesting. And, and you ended up getting a PhD in the Soviet Union, if, I'm, uh, if memory serves me correctly? Yes, that's correct. Do you have any interesting experiences, memorable stories to tell about what it was like in Russia and the Soviet Union? And when was it, late 70s, early 80s that you were there? 78 to 81. So for, for three years, I was in, based in Moscow in the Soviet Academy of Science uh, in Moscow, 
in the pretty prestigious Institute of African Studies. You know, these three years was a tremendous experience. I saw different ethnicities, different languages around me because I asked not to stay in the dormitory for the foreigners. But from the very beginning, I asked uh, our host to put me in the a bit worse, I should say, with the worst conditions, but dormitory only for Russians, for the Soviet citizens, for the Soviet students. So I could learn much faster Russian language, but also it was a phenomenal experience in colorful makeup of the Soviet Union. You know, Azeris, uh, Turkmens, Uzbeks, Russians, Ukrainians, Lithuanians, Latvians, all around me. So I was shocked because I came from the country, which is uh, 97% uh, Polish. Diversity, diversity of cultures, languages, behavior, and values was phenomenal experience. So you saw the full range of that lovely fabric that made up the Soviet Union. Fabulous. Now, you were there. That would have been the same time that the labor riots were raging in Poland, if memory serves me correctly. That was 80, 80, 81. Were you involved in that? I think you weren't because you were in Russia. But uh, was there any, uh, were there any repercussions for you being a Pole living in the Soviet Union at that time? A bit of suspicion was in clouds around me because of, the, of Polish solidarity. So the question was whether I am going back or not or staying to the end of my studies. I decided to stay to the end of my, of my program. And I believe this was a very, very right decision. But also many of my colleagues in Moscow helped me very much through this, through this period of time by saying, you know, do not worry. Everything will be okay. We'll help you in a case of, of you will have problems in Moscow because of the solidarity period. So politically, I was in the wrong place, but culturally and scholarly, I was probably in the best place I could have been at the time. Well, good for you. It's good to hear you had friends who could tell you, don't worry, be happy, as we say these days. <laughs> That's probably the trademark of, uh, of Russian culture. If you are a friend of Russians, you are staying a friend for the long time. And That's exactly right. The, the, the Russians will give you the shirt off their back, as, as people know, and not just the Russians, the other nationalities of the Soviet Union as well. Now, you ended up teaching at Warsaw University, at the Institute of International Relations, as I recall, and eventually your educational path brought you to Oxford and even Berkeley University. H how is it that you ended up in Canada? It was uh, 1989. The system was changed. Many of my colleagues and, and friends went on two paths. One was business. They went to business from academia or to politics. I stayed at the university. And it was a difficult time to stay at the university because of lack of funds for libraries, no books, no, no access to journals, and so on and so forth. So I got the one, one year to do some research. And I wrote three letters. One to Oxford, one to Berkeley, and one, and the third one to uh, Queen's University in Kingston, in Canada. And the first very supportive letter came back from Kingston, from Canada, saying, Piotr, if you have this year, stay with us. We will create a, a contract for you so you can spend this time in the library and do what you want to do. And not only that, they invited immediately my wife to be part of the mechanical engineering department at Queen's University as well. 
So it was quick. It was extremely friendly. So the decision was, let's go for one year to Canada. And after this one year, you know, it was the, why not another year? And after the second year, why not the third year? And then <laughs> Carton University opened the position and my friends in Canada literally pushed me to be part of this competition. And I want the job. And, and that's it. And that was probably the, the shortest history of, of my stay in Canada. Very interesting. But you were a visiting professor at Oxford and you did lecture at Berkeley as well. Am I right? Yes. Yes. For, for a few months in, in Oxford and at Berkeley as well in the Institute of International Relations. So, so by my math, you sent out three feelers and got three positive replies, uh, all from the top uh, educational institutions in the world. I'm pretty impressed with your, uh, with your bio, Professor Dudkevich. <laughs> yes, it happened. <laughs> Well, uh, tell me a little about golden time, as you called it, uh, as the director of the Institute of European and Russian Studies at Carleton University. How was that institution formed? What was its mandate, the activities focus? Does the institution still advise CETA or train Canadian diplomats? You know, what, what did you do and, and what are the structures that were formed doing nowadays? Uh, Nathan, a few weeks ago, we've celebrated 50 anniversary of the formation of this institute was supposed to be first the Institute for Soviet Studies, then for Russian Studies, then for Russian and European Studies. And finally, the institute was transformed into Russian, Euro-Asian and European Studies. And I was privileged to be director for a few years uh, between 2004 and 2008. And it was a fantastic time for for Russia-Canada relations, because everything was rather smooth in our relations. And we had uh, several top-ranked visits, as probably you remember. That time, Prime Minister Chrétien went twice to Russia. And in 2003, it was a, a high-ranking visit by uh, Governor General Adrian Clarkson, who took several prominent Canadians to Moscow, and somehow, somehow I was included into the state delegation. We, we were very close to, uh, to policymaking. We were advising CEDA uh, as an institute. Uh, we were invited to Foreign Affairs uh, and to Governor General to discuss Russian matters. So for us, it was a golden time because it was a real collaboration with Russia uh, supported by Canadian government. And then came 2014, conflict in Ukraine, and everything changed. But it is another story to tell. Since 2014, obviously, our relations soured and went significantly down. But for this couple of years, Canadian government was very active, and we're very prominent in Russia. I should say that Canadians were highly, highly regarded with CEDA projects. Well, you, you talk about CEDA a lot. The, the Canadian uh, International Development Agency, for those of us, who, those of listeners who might not know the acronym, CETA was active in Russia until when? 2009, 2010, thereabouts. They pulled up their roots. They left the country. You have mourned that as a lost opportunity. And yet uh, we see the Soviet Union or the, the Russian Federation today at odds with Russia on so many foreign policy issues. Your standard Canadian uh, uh, diplomat or politician would say, of course, we left Russia. Uh, why should we have contributed to the development of that country? Explain to me why you believe that CETA's uh, withdrawal from Russia 
is, was a missed opportunity. You know, uh, my long position is that we should deal with Russia as she is, not as we dream about other Russia or another Russia. We should deal with Russia as as is, and that's why uh, our presence uh, via mainly socially oriented projects was so important for building image of Canada as a socially friendly country, socially oriented country, that we were passing a lot of expertise to our Russian colleagues at the very different levels, and particularly our presence was visible in the regions. Why we cut it? Because of the decision that Russia became a market economy, fully fledged market economy, and therefore did not needed our support. I thought it was a mistake because we we built it formidable connections, formidable support, particularly in a few regions that we that Sida was visible in Novgorod, Murmansk, uh, Chuvashia, Kirov, and few others. Obviously, in the Moscow Obwise, in the Moscow region as well, we were able to talk, to have a serious dialogue, without uh, without Sida and without other uh, government funding. Our dialogue is uh, is almost meaningless at the moment. Well, I'm getting to a point where I'm going to say something shocking and offensive, and I want you to respond honestly. In the Canadian press, there are people that have called you a useful tool of the Russian government. You are not objective, you're pro-Russian, you're pro-Putin. We're not a political podcast, but what would you say to those people? Oh, Nathan, what a question. You know, I met Russian president as the only Canadian 15 times. I met many Russian top policymakers, ministers, deputy ministers, some of the top-ranked experts for Russian government are my colleagues, some of them even friends. So you can draw very quickly a very simple conclusion. Yes, with, uh, with such a connections, obviously he cannot be objective. But I would say uh, three things. First, my mantra for last uh, 30 years was the same. Canadian policy towards Russia should reflect Canadian interests only, full stop. That second is that dialogue with Russia is necessary because we are operating in areas when Russia is operating as well. Global challenges require global responses and Canada and Russia are part of potential response to the global challenges. So we like it or not, but we shall cooperate in Russia in a few areas. And thirdly, is the question what uh, Canadian interests mean. And if the Canadian interests mean for some to cut all relations with Russia, to topple Russian government and helping it and be as disruptive as possible to the current people in power, I don't see that this is in the should be included in the package of Canadian interests. So we are different with some of experts in Canada. So in short, I would say to such people, if they are saying that some of us are useful idiots, I would say that they are useless idiots. 
<laughs> and uh, I would like to ask them to read at least one book of mine in which you uh, you can see how academically critically I am towards uh, main Russian processes. I was the author of the first book in Russia that we were trying to see Russia from below, not Russia from the Kremlin, but Russia from below. This was one of the most critical books which was published in Russia. There was some criticism towards this book, but my Russian colleagues swallow a lot of criticism without any problems. The picture is not black and white. The picture is gray. Let me just say that I, I believe the people that give that assessment of you have not read your materials, because I have, and I know very well that you are an objective analyst. And uh, some of your positions may be interpreted as pro-Russian, but in fact, they're pro-Canadian. So uh, I would encourage anybody with that viewpoint of Pyotr Dukevich to read his material in much more detail. Anyway, I wanted to talk about the course that you teach at Carleton. You teach, uh, I don't know the name of the course, it's on Russian domestic politics. And in discussions, you told me, you gave me a very fascinating analysis of what's happening inside of Russia. You talked about national values, national interests, and you said there are three or four mainstreams in today's Russia. Can you summarize those for our listeners? I decided to put a course, which is called Russian Domestic Politics. And this is probably one of the few, if I know in Canada, that deals with the internal Russian processes, not international relations related, but focus on what's going on inside Russia. And one of the topics that we discuss with our students is the ideological picture of current Russia with the fascinating division of thoughts, the three schools of thoughts. One is more traditional, based on the idea of Berdyaev that Russia is producing its own set of values, traditional values, that should form the backbone of the Russia policymaking. Another school, which is westernizers, and they are present in the current government as well in Russia, mainly in the portfolio of economics and finances, are saying that Russia should be as open to the West as possible. Not copy the West, but not cut the ties with the West. That Russia should be risk averse in severing times, ties with the, with the Western partners. And the third school is related to the stream of Euro-Asian direction of Russian past, which says that the future of Russia is not in the West, the future of Russia is in the East. So the efforts to connect Russia with the Eurasian Economic Union and with the Central Asian countries is the future of Eurasia. The future of Russia is closer to China rather than closer to European Union. So this is one of the topics, but you know, there are many other topics on the Russian elites, how they are formed, who are they, what they want to do on the Russian economics internally, on the Russian regions, which are fascinating topics, on gender in Russia, which is another interesting topic in our course. So in short, this is the survey of the main processes, structures and institutions that are present in the Russian political system. Now, you've thrown out some tantalizing hints. You talked about the Russian elites and what they want to do to the economy. Do tell. What do they want to do to the economy? You talked about gender issues in Russia. You said there's something. Just give us a, a two-minute summary of that. These are very interesting topics for our listeners. 
Russian elite is very diverse, I would say, because it's a formation of political, economic, or security-oriented elite. This is not a very coherent elite at, from the certain point in the very top. They are people who are a sort of mix of political interest and economic interest and security interest in one. This elite is formed during the last, this is the third wave of elite formation in Russia. And in this sense, those people are trying to pursue safe ways to build a more stable and predictable Russia. Now, the, this I would say that what I see is the very big presence of the security apparatus in the current elite of, of the Russian Federation, and they are not only present in the, in the political sense, but they are also present in economic sense. This is new. Another new factor is the growing role of the regional elites. There is a sense among Western observers that everything uh, comes from the Kremlin. Maybe I see this in the different way that a lot of impulses for the Russian uh, socioeconomic development comes from the dominant regions. So we are also talking about this. Interesting. And and you, in your CETA role, were active primarily in the regions, not in Moscow. I mean, you did something in Moscow, but you were primarily active in the regions, were you not? Yes, in Murmansk, in Kirov, in Nizhny Novgorod, during the several CETA projects, we were focused mostly on the regions because Canadian government wisely <laughs> decided not to focus on Moscow, which was um, many other donors were provided the expertise and money to Moscow. Canadian government decided to focus on the on the Russian regions, some in Siberia as well, in the Arctic, beyond the Arctic Circle. This was something that was a trademark for Russian presence in for Canadian presence in Russia. Now you you hinted about gender policy in Russia. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? A few people know that within our uh, one of CEDA projects on women and labor market in Russia, we were very close to form a first in Russia law on equal arts for men and uh, for women and men. We produced not only a draft law that was considered in the Russian Duma, we were very close to pass this bill through the several Duma committees. It didn't work for a few reasons, but definitely, for instance, in several regions, we introduced the gender balance budgets and they are still working in that way. So our Canadian input into gender equality was in, 19, in 2004, 2008, more significant than many people know. Fascinating, fascinating. CETA did something long-lasting and worthwhile in the Russian Federation, is what I'm hearing from you. We should say that Russians were key partners in this project, and they were responsible for success at that time, led by Galina Karevova, that time the deputy prime minister. But obviously, we were part of this. We were providing expertise and support. And in this sense, we were true partners with, with Russia, and that's the only way 
how you can be successful in Russia. You are creating a long-term partnership. Trust is absolutely first first-rate component of all these relations. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. The trust is everything. If, if trust is lacking in your relations with Russia, I don't care whether you're talking about 10 years ago or 15 years ago or now, if trust is lacking, you, you can make uh, no progress. Tell me a little bit about the areas. You said there are areas where we could and should still be cooperating in spite of the obvious and very strong political differences between our countries. What, what are some of those areas and in what ways should we, we be cooperating? In geographic sense, I strongly think that Arctic and Siberia are areas that uh, Canadian expertise, Canadian investment will be very welcome and useful. In the sense of political uh, contacts, there are areas such as uh, environmental protection, social inequality, both from the Canadian and from the Russian perspective, should be dealt with, and we can cooperate there as well. High technology, IT, all kinds of the business connections. So in other words, business connection, bureaucratic connection, which will provide an umbrella for business and for other contacts, academic connections, and political connections at the medium level, not at the highest level, but at the medium level, which is possible, exchange of director of the departments, deputy directors of the departments, will provide us with enough information to keep these relations going. It's very interesting that you said mid-level contacts, because we at Serpa have found great success in exactly that area, Uh, you know, getting Canadian regional officials or provincial officials, rather, to deal with their Russian counterparts and, uh, and to actually accomplish something without the political overtones that it would have if such an uh, undertaking were, were done on the national level. So we, uh, I would uh, wholeheartedly agree with you on that. It's interesting that you mentioned the Arctic, because we uh, in Serba also certainly promote uh, cooperation in the Arctic to protect uh, indigenous peoples. The largest uh, investor in Russia, Kinross, does an excellent job of that. Plenty of people, I think you mentioned in our prior talk, are trying to exploit the Northwest Passage or the Northeast Passage uh, in a way that wouldn't be in Russian or Canadian interests? You know, that's the one of the areas in which Canadian interests and Russian interests are not colliding, but they are fully allied, is Arctic. Protection of the Arctic environment, new policies that are coming to regulate the Northwest Passage, but also the policies towards extraction of the natural resources in the Arctic. All those components, I think that we are in full agreement with Russia. (laughs) So we can very naturally form interest alliance, if you wish, to protect Arctic against those who would like to enter the Arctic and exploit this without any regulations based on the completely free market rules. That's why our presence and our agreements will be so important for the future of the Arctic. But also, we have indigenous people, contact people to people, and exchanges of ideas. But at the same time, we have a different types of, of approach to many social issues. For instance, our policy on the Arctic is formed from below and going to the top. Russian policies towards Arctic is formed from the top, going below. 
so different types of the policy formulation. We can uh, work out how to approach social issues from uh, from more Canadian perspective. And here the Russians can learn a lot. And we can learn a lot from Russia on their research because the hundreds of people are working in the different academic institutions on Russia. And we can learn uh, tremendously from their experience. So we have mutual in- interests. We can learn from each other in different areas and being quite compatible. I think I would agree with that. Now, I do want to hear about your involvement in the Valdai Club, the Valdai Discussion Club. Tell us what it was, how it has evolved, how it has changed. Can you explain to us how it started and what it has become? And most importantly, why it is useful? It started in 2003. Russian news agency RIA Novosti invited about 40 mostly Western experts to show them the real Russia. The real Russia means let's open Russia for you. You will come, you will see, and you will be more objective in reporting about Russia. And it was uh, quite a success. I joined one year after it was formed. It was a a very interesting uh, experience because we met Russian policymakers, we met Russian scholars, we had access to them. So it was like, we would like to show you Russia as is, and you will make your own decision and conclusions on how to report on this to, to mostly media and to your students and to the policymakers in your countries. And then uh, Ukraine conflict in 2014 changed a lot because from that point on, Valdai was less open to discussing Russian internal matters and more open to discuss the global and regional matters in which invitees or experts from different countries can add to the debate. So Valde Club was transformed from from rather politically oriented or media-oriented outfit into something that was called Valde Club Foundation, which is now much more expert-oriented. We see less politicians, more experts. We discuss less Russian internal matters. We discuss more international relations matters in which Russia is involved, like nuclear non-proliferation, terrorism, climate change, and so on and so forth. It was For me, it was through these years to see very prominent scholars from United States, from England, from France, from Britain, but also from Central Asia and China. It is a unique platform to discuss matters in which Russia is involved in the direct, straightforward way. This unique platform, because it continues for 18 years, this year was the last 18-year anniversary of, of its formation. And usually after the series of expertise seminars and exchanges of ideas, there is a presentation by President of the Russian Federation, which is the culmination of each Valde Club. And this year, Putin was a bit different than usual. On one, on one hand, he presented quite a strong message to the West 
that Russia is less prone to discussion with the European Union on several matters, still open to United States and very open to Central Asia. On the other hand, he announced that Russia turned to the traditional values, to a set of traditional Russian values that will be guided the Russian domestic and foreign policies. The tone of this year presentation was risk-averse in a sense that Russia will not do any or join any uh, actions that will be drastic or dramatic. The fragility of international order is such that Putin advocates for the very cautious movements in any direction not to destabilize this fragility even further. So that's each year we have this kind of the three or four main points from from Putin that is discussed later on in by the global press and by the global media and by by many experts. That's fascinating that you have a front row seat to this uh, unveiling of uh, what really is Russian, you know, new Russian policy. The uh, outlook that you just described to me reminds me of what we heard from the U.S. Uh, more than a century ago. Speak softly and carry a big stick. <laughs> <laughs> well, the stick is bigger and bigger. Tell me, in 30 seconds or less, what made you a leader? What was it in your life, in your history, that made you a leader? Oh, Nathan, I, I don't feel like a leader. <laughs> First of all, in several instances that I was institutionally put in the position of leadership, to face the situation of leadership is to be fully responsible for what you do. For the successes, advice is to share success among all partners and members of the team. For the failures, take the full personal responsibility for the failure. Being responsible on many levels, on all issues involved, would be probably my best advice to those in the position of leadership. And it was advice to myself I was trying to follow. Good for you. Tell us this. What does the future hold for Professor Pyotr Dudkevich? What does the future hold? What are your plans? Do what I do find uh, courage to stay on course, despite the fact that we are facing probably the worst period of relations with Russia, very tense relations with Russia. And I would like to, to see in the future that despite that, we will continue conversation, which will bring us a bit closer for the benefits of both countries. Well, that's a lovely sentiment, and I have to agree with you wholeheartedly. And on that note, I think we'll wrap it up. Thank you so much, Pyotr, for your time today. I have been joined today by Professor Pyotr Dubkevich, a professor of political science and co-director of Carleton University's Center for Governance and Public Management. Uh, he is a member of the National Board of Directors of Serba and a member of the Valdai Discussion Club from Canada. Thank you for your time, Pyotr. Thank you so much for inviting me. You've been listening to Icebreakers, the podcast produced by Serba, a nonprofit business association supporting trade, investment, and good relations between Canada and the countries of Eurasia. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can join our LinkedIn group to send questions to guests and find more information about the podcast series in general on our website at www.serbanet.org. Thanks for tuning in.